0: Uh, go to John chapter 13. We're in a series. We've been looking through the book of John. And so uh, the first 12 chapters of John are known as uh, uh, the book of signs. So in, in chapters 1 through 12 or 1 through 11, Jesus is going to do a series of seven signs. They're miracles. He's going to change the water to wine. He's going to feed 5,000. Um, he's uh, going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to do a series of miracles, of signs that all point to His glory. So John opens up and says that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. He's always been. He is God. He's God that has come, the Son of God, to dwell among us. And then these series of signs that point to the fact that He really is God. And then in chapter 12, there's a dinner and a foot washing and a preparation. And so you get to 13. From 13 to the end of John's gospel is known as the book of glory or the book of the passion. Because while the first 12 chapters occur over three years, this will occur over about six days. And so John's going to slow the narrative down and he's going to take us now... Not where we're in the world, and not where Jesus is interacting with Jews and religious leaders and even Gentiles, but this is uh, this is sort of a family dinner. It's 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 in the quiet of a home, and, and the audience is the disciples. And from chapter 13 to chapter 17, Jesus is going to instruct his disciples. It's going to be known as it's known as the Upper Room discourse, one of the three kind of major teachings of Jesus. You've got the Sermon on the Mount, you've got uh, the Olivet Discourse, which looks to uh, the future uh, end times, but this one, this is Jesus's preparation for his disciples because he's about to leave them. He's going to go and he's going to ascend back to heaven where he came from and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And what you realize as you read chapters 13 through 17, that these disciples are in... No, so they've had three years of training with Jesus and they're not ready. And so that's why He's going to say, hey, another's going to come help you. The Holy Spirit's going to come and indwell you. And In fact, it's better if I go away. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, you... Gonna, you're going to launch the church, and through my body, the church, you'll do greater things than I've done. So we're going to see this morning what Jesus is going to do in his very first act, at least as John records it, in this upper room discourse. Now the truth is, it, you look at John 13. We'll read it for me. You go, oh, I know that story, and you you more than likely, if you've ever been to a church, heard a sermon on John 13. You could probably preach a sermon on John 13. So what I offer this morning are some humble observations about uh, what's happening and what I think we can take away from it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read through uh, John 13 together. Father, would you, would you be gracious to us this morning during this time? And we... Um, We want Your Spirit to do His work in our hearts and our minds and our lives as we lay ourselves before Your Word. Father, I pray it would not return void this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 13 in John, beginning verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, you can think of John chapter 13, verse 1, as an introduction to the whole you know, upper room discourse, from, from 13 to 17. And when he says, hey, the Passover's come, it's, it's the final Passover. It's three Passovers that John's recorded in Jesus' ministry. This is the last one. And in fact, theologically... It's the last Passover ever He Jesus is the final lamb He is the blood on the doorstep he is he is the sacrifice for the firstborn. He is the once and for all atonement for sin And so in some ways this is a recording of the very last Passover And He talks about loving His own. So He's been in the world and for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And now, we're going to focus in on not the Father's love for the world in sending the Son, but the Son's love for His disciples in laying down His life. He's going to give His life to them. In fact, everything He's saying is to prepare them for the cross burial and the resurrection and what comes after. And it says He loved them to the end. He loved them completely or to the utmost. There's no greater love. There is no greater demonstration or act of love than what takes place on Calvary. In fact, in John, 1 John chapter 4, as John writes that letter, he says, hey, God is love. And if you want to know what love is, you look here. And, and where John points us is the cross. So, you know, God loved us first. We didn't love Him first. And in this is love that He sent His Son to be, and then He says, the propitiation, which means the atoning sacrifice. He All our sin went on Him. And He bore the infinite wrath of God as the penalty for our sin. And John says, you want to know what love is? You look at the hair. That's love. So then in verse 2, John's going to introduce us to the scene. It's kind of the second introduction. It's the introduction immediately to the scene. And look what it says. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So John wants us to know, and he's going to tell us several times throughout John 13, Hey, Simon's here. I mean, Judas is here. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the one who is a co-conspirator with Satan. John wants us very clearly to not miss that Judas is right in the center of this event. There is a cosmic battle going on. There is a cosmic battle brewing. And Satan hates humanity and he hates God and he hates the Son of God. And he's seeking to thwart the plan of God and to divide the followers. And you see that the love of Jesus in the midst of this plot, cosmic, spiritual plot going on. Well, in verse three, he's gonna he's gonna remind us of the identity of Jesus. So there he is. It's during the supper. Judas Iscariot is, is set to betray him. And then verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back from God, rose from supper. The whole context is to remind us, hey, remember way back in John chapter 1 where the Word became flesh and the Word was God and and. And it was from the beginning and all things are made through Him and He's reminding us of this this majestic and high and sovereign and glorious identity of Jesus. He is absolutely, completely in control. That no matter what happens following this, we're to understand that Jesus is in absolute control. He knows where He's from he knows where he's going. You know, he just has a few days left here in his ministry. He knows that in a matter of days, it is appointed for him to die for mankind. It's appointed for him to die for these men that he's about to share a meal with. And what is on his mind is making sure they... Know they are loved. So he gets up; he he rises from the supper. Now I want you to follow this in verses four and five. You could write out your margin if you wanted to. Philippians chapter two, and it tells us there. You know, we're to have the mind of Christ, and it was this that, being the being um, being God, He did not consider. Uh, you know, equality with God, something to be grasped, but rather He took on humanity. He took on humility. He lowered Himself um, to the point of a servant and even being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you have Paul describe in Philippians this, this majestic dissension of Jesus into the absolute lowest place humanity to bear the curse crucified naked on a hill and here is this picture of it so what Jesus is doing when he rises from the table and you know the story he's going to wash the disciples feet he's giving them a symbol he's he's acting out what is about to come it's what the prophets did in the Old Testament Ezekiel and Zechariah, They would act out what it is that God was teaching. What Jesus is doing here is He's going to wash their feet. He's going to take the form of a slave. He's going to become lower than a Gentile slave before these men. And He's going to say, you're going to understand this later. You're going to understand this after the cross. Because when you look there, remember this is what... I'm doing. So in verse 4, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around it. In Luke's gospel, the disciples had uh, just been arguing about who's the greatest. Um, it's an appropriate time to have that conversation, don't you think? Um, and fortunately, in 2019, we we don't struggle with those kinds of things anymore. But back then, the disciples did. You know, as they looked around, having a little competition, who's greater? Well, you know, Peter's probably stronger, but, you know, he always puts his foot in his mouth. Um, John's reminding everybody, remember, I'm the one he loves. And... um which I think why is why John can get away with saying this over and over in the Gospels, because all the other disciples are dead by then. I mean, there's not any disciple to come and go. Wait, 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 John. He loved all of us. So they, you know, they meet him at the door of heaven when he gets there. There's no instance in any Jewish literature or Greco-Roman literature of the time or before that we ever have recorded that a superior washes the feet of someone who is inferior. That there's no supervisors washing the feet of their employees. No masters washing the feet of their slaves. In fact, the the Jewish slave was exempt from washing feet because it it was menial. It would have defiled them. It would have made them unclean. And so they were exempt from it. And if your feet were washed, they were washed by a Gentile slave. Because it was the lowest of lowest things that could be done. And here Jesus He's going to shock them with what He does. In fact, I think they're stunned. I think you hear it as John writes it. You'll see it as Peter experiences it. There's this symbol that Jesus is pointing to, and yet all they can see, their head is swimming. Like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Jesus, the Messiah, the One whom we've seen do these miracles, things that only God can do and speak only the way God speaks. He's just taking the form of a slave and now he's on the feet and he's making his way, crawling on his knees around the table, washing feet. You know, a lot of folks, you read this passage and we can miss, I think, the forest for the trees. We look at it we go, oh, it's about foot washing. So we should get some water and wash each other's feet. I don't think that's what it's about, really, thankfully. Because, I mean, we're we're so weird and self-conscious, right? I mean, but we can put ourselves in the moment. I remember we did a foot washing here um, a few years ago, several years ago. It was on a Thursday night before Easter. And we advertised a service, but we didn't tell anybody it was a feet washing because you know why? Nobody shows up for feet washing services. So we did, but see, I knew what was going on, and I have to tell you, in my vanity, you know what I did before we got here? I scrubbed those suckers like you've never seen. I mean, my feet are weird. I mean, they're kind of deformed. I got, you know, these webbed. The three toes in the middle are webbed, and you know, mostly just two and three. So, I'm like, sure, I'm like a, I'm like a, I'm like an X Man, really. I mean, I haven't figured out the power that comes with it but certainly the identifying marker of it, all right? And so we did it. I mean, it was weird, and it was awkward, and I remember, oh, man, this is so... Weird. And if it wasn't for Scott Killer, who was the very first person... I mean, was that, I'm there, and I'm like, hey, we're going to watch feet. Who wants to come? And I mean, it, oh, my goodness, people were looking for how they were going to sneak out of this joint. And Scott comes up, and he's the first one, and then people begin to follow. You remember that, Scott? Sort of. I'll never forget it. Um, But I mean, there's this sense in which we're we're that way. We say, oh, I don't want anybody to do that for me. And yet Jesus is making the point that He has to do this. Because it's pointing to the bigger thing that He has to do. See, you can catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory. But I don't think we fully understand the cross until in eyeing that glory, we come face to face with His humility. Jesus comes to Peter. He's gone around and He finally gets to Peter. And Peter says in verse 6, He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do do you wash my feet? And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. You're not going to wash my feet. And then in verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, after the cross, you will understand. Now, here's what's going on in 6 and 7. Jesus comes to Peter. Peter's question. He's stunned. Afterwards, you'll understand. But here's the thing. Peter's absolutely humiliated. I mean, he's... He's embarrassed by this act of humility. He would rather wash Jesus' feet. He'd rather say, No, switch places with me. You're the honored one. I'll wash your feet. But you have to hear this morning. The desire to honor Jesus is not enough. You can sit here all morning long, all year long, your entire life and think, man, Jesus is a great guy. He's amazing. In fact, He's the greatest of all the guys. And I'm going to spend my entire life seeking to honor Him. And it is not enough. We have to be utterly undone by the humility of Jesus to understand what it is that He did to save us and to have fellowship understanding it's something He did for us. His love for us, not our love for Him. And in essence, we have to be crushed by the weight of His love for us. I mean, to embrace this, you've got to have the highest view of Jesus. And in having that high view, it prepares us to be overwhelmed by his humility. See, in John, the signs have prepared us. And they prepare us for the ultimate act of glory, which is the cross, which is also the ultimate act of humility. The author of life giving himself in death for you. Willingly. All things were under his charge. All things were un- given into his hands. This doesn't happen to Jesus. He's determined. He's heading there. Well, in, in verse 9, you've got to love Peter. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, no, well, not my feet only, but also my hands and, and my head. I mean, I want part with you. I want to do this deal with you. You Wash all of me. So then Jesus says The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But he's completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. Reminds us Judas is there. Here's what's going on. Peter's response is If a little's good, then I want more. It's like this zeal. I mean, it's. And it's an error in the other direction. So maybe he's still thinking of cleansing as something he can do to demonstrate himself as fit, as worthy. As, as if, well, if everybody's going to have their feet washed, well, I'll have more of me washed. For Peter, listen, it's not just coming to terms with the humility of Jesus. What Peter needs to do is come to terms with the humility of Jesus in light of his own failure, in light of his own sin, in light of his own inadequacy and unworthiness. Not only uncomfortable with the humility of Jesus and ultimately what it points to, this this foot washing pointing to the cross, but also uncomfortable with the reality that he's responsible. See, there's not anything He can do. We'll see this at the end of the passage here. What what happens in in 9 through 11, what Jesus is going to say, is He's going to say this. So He he initially, He gets down to wash the feet, and He says, you'll understand what I'm doing later. And so He's washing the feet, is pointing to the cross, is pointing to, hey, I'm going to serve you in this way. I'm going to die in, in your place. I'm going to atone for your sins. You'll be washed clean by my shed blood. And then in Peter's interaction with Jesus, we, we get almost this other picture that I, you know that, that came about from Peter's response. So Peter says, well, I, I want to be washed. Don't wash me, I'll wash you. He said, well, you have to be washed or you can't be with me. You have to be atoned. You have to be saved, and you can only be saved if I do this for you, if, if you feel the weight of what it is that I've done for you. So then Peter says, Well, then wash me all, all, all over the place. And Jesus says, No, no, wait a minute. Here's how it works. So you do believe in me, Peter. You are atoned for. I have atoned for. And atonement is something that only happens once. You're bathed once. Now, as a believer, you still walk around in the dirty streets of the world and your feet get covered with all kinds of mud, and you have to come and confess that sin. John will say it in his letter, 1 John. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Lines of sin, so there you go. But he says, if you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which is actually a statement of faith. It is not but if you confess your sin and then show by penance and guilt and writhing on the floor just how sorry you really are. Then He'll, in His mercy... We we can never do anything to make ourselves clean. Not as unbelievers coming to Christ. Not as believers coming to fellowship. We trust that that is what God does through His Son. I remember when I was young, I I didn't understand this. I became a believer really when I was young. I ended up stepping out of Faith for a while, although I was never lost to God. I certainly lost Him. But I remember being young and having come a believer, and then experiencing, you know, like guilt and conviction. As I'd run to my room, my little room on, there in Abilene, Texas, thirty-four oh nine South Willis. I'd kneel by the bed rain all over again to be saved. I've probably saved 20, 30 times. Jesus is saying to Peter, "That's not how it works." It's a once in all, once for all atonement. You it's a salvation you can't lose. It's a it's a cleansing you can't undo. And yet to remain in fellowship to have part with You confess your sins He's faithful and just to forgive your sins. This is what's going on here. Now, here is what is interesting. He washes all of the feet. And you know who is there? It's Judas, who is one who comes for a washing but has not been bathed clean. I want to talk about that in just a moment. So there's application one. There's this atonement that takes place a once and for all washing, cleansing. There is the daily confession that believers make that we confess our sins. And then he's going to apply this and say, okay, now, this is my love for you, and what I want you to do is I want you to now do this same thing. In verse 17, he'll say, you'll be blessed if you do this. It's it's the beatitude. And he sums it all up, and I'll just, for the sake of time, skip down to Look at uh, verses uh, 34 and 35. He says, A new command I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Not by the t shirts you wear, not by the language you use, not by the radio stations or concerts you attend, not by how big your study Bible is, or if you Pray before a meal in public. That's not how they're going to know you're my disciples. And all those things are fine. They're great. Have Adam. They're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And what I'm doing here is an example. Now, it doesn't mean you, we go and we're going to die for each other. That, you know, the only way to love you is that I have to go be hung on a cross. That is not what it means. It is an example. That kind of self-giving, sacrificing love, however. And it has some implications. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, orthodoxy is essential, which means what you believe. Believing rightly, that's essential, but it's not enough. If you're not loving your brother, says John, in effect, you're in darkness and you don't have the love of Christ. To love your brother is is more important than orthodoxy. More important than a mere mechanical correctness in your conduct and behavior in an ethical sense. Living rightly, you know, on the straight edge. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, you go to 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. And he points to the cross. And then he says, since God so loved us, we ought to also, you expect the text to say, love Him back. But it doesn't say love Him back. We're to love one another. And in that love, it says, he is, his, in the invisible God becomes visible to the world around us. I and mean, a lot of us spend time, and we're like, you know, God, I'm loving you back. I can't stand all these people that I'm around, but I, mean, I really love you. Galatians 5.14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's going to tell them in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. So how do you live out this foot-washing command to love one another? How do we love one another? Well, I'd say it this way, it's by giving our lives away to those around us. And not just the people in our small group, or in our church, or people we like. By loving everyone, it's seeing seeing everybody's life around you is more valuable than your own. Like this way, Paul says in Philippians two: Have this mindset. Consider everyone better than yourself. Loving people in a way for their good. Loving them. Loving them for their good, not your good. It means giving of your life, giving of your resources, physically giving to those that are in need, sometimes to the point that it even puts you in need. Only because of what Jesus has done. Listen, if you're married in here, it's the only way you can love your spouse when they don't deserve it. It's the only way that when everything goes wrong, and you know, if you you know, we were to put this on paper and try it in front of a court of law, you know, it's not your fault. But you walk in and you go, "What? It's me. I own it. I'll take it. It's not you. It's me." loving your spouse and not needing love in return. Because what Jesus has done for you, you can love your spouse even if they never change. And this is so hard. I mean, what if we love? And you love and you love and you say, well, look, I I know the end of the prize. What's worth it is they're going to be changed. And then it'll all be worth it. Just loving them even if they don't change. not loving them for your sake, but loving them for Christ's sake. And ensuring the greatest possible good for them. Listen, you you can only do that. You can only do that. If you've experienced the crushing weight of Jesus' humble love, You realize the Savior of the universe, the Eternal God, got on his knees and washed your feet. It's the only way. It's the only way you can ever get there. Words of a letter from one broken heart to another. This would have said: it "Said dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness." that I've felt since, you, uh, since since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one will ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. <laughs> kind of how we do it, right? Oh, I'm willing to pour it all out for you as long as I'm sure of what the benefit is for me. Well, here's what's amazing, and it, it's, it's beyond the scope, so let me see if I can wrap it up in a few thoughts here. Um, if you look at verses 18 and 19, and then you also now skip down, and you, you see the, the conversation beginning in verse 21, um, that Jesus is, in verse 21, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Now look at this. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom He spoke. Judas didn't stand out. I mean, he looked like they all did. He acted like they did. There was no... I mean, they didn't, Jesus didn't say that and then somebody go, I knew it. Judas. Judas wasn't a bad word then. People still named their kids Judas. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Hey. You know why Peter's asking that? Luke 24 tells us. Or Luke. Somewhere, 20. Somewhere. Luke tells us. You know why? Because they're all, when Jesus says it, they all begin to say. Is it me? Am I, am I the one? That's why Peter wants to know. So Unless you know that you're capable of that. So the disciple, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do? Do it quickly. Now look at verse 28 and 29. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And notice the illusion here John draws. And it was night. Judas' feet were washed, but he was not bathed. See, I fear people look at religion that way. They come on their own terms. They look for a little washing, want to fit in, don't want to stand out, you know, want to get a little help from the big man. You know? Judas wanted from Jesus, not God's will, but his own. Judas did not trust Jesus. He had different plans for Jesus. He had an idea of what he wanted Jesus to do for him, of what he'd become in the presence of Jesus. What Judas cared for most was Judas. What Judas believed was that Jesus was not out for what Judas believed was the best for him. So Judas proceeds with what he perceives to be the best for him. And here's the thing, and, and John doesn't record it all. We get another glimpse. We'll talk about it a little more in a couple of weeks. The other Gospels are clear. He goes and he sells Jesus out for 30 uh pieces of silver, which, which was the sort of bounty on Jesus, the all call from the religious leaders, if anybody knows where he is, you know, on the wanted sign, reward, 30 pieces of silver. So Judas goes and turns him in. There is a remorse that takes place with Judas. He knows that Jesus is innocent. The only thing Jesus is guilty of is not satisfying His own expectations. And so He goes and sells them out. But then when He sees what takes place, Judas comes to this place and his actions were more than he bargained for. The guilt of his actions were not what he wanted. So he tries to save himself. And he goes and the... Other gospels are clear. He has this grief, but it is not a godly grief. It's a it's a regret. It's a man. I wished I hadn't done that. Here's your thirty pieces of silver back. I don't want Jesus' blood on my hands. See, I think the biggest difference between amongst the many differences, Peter and Judas, because we're going to see at the end. You know, if you look. 36 through 38 Simon Peter said to the Lord, where are you going?" he said, "Where am'm going, you can't follow me you fall after Peter said, "Lord why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you." Jesus said, "Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. What Peter does, what Judas does is very similar. The difference is Peter will have come to grips with the glory and the humility of Jesus. And Peter will know without a doubt that Jesus' blood is on his hands. Judas comes to grips with neither. He didn't want the blood of an innocent man on his hands, and so he was left to face his own death and his own Here's what the cross means. The cross means you have the blood of Jesus on your hands. He died for you, and there's no getting around it, and you can't undo it. And that's the reality of Jesus' innocent blood on your hands. You can't not say, no, 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 you're not going to wash me. No, no, no. You're too high and holy and well-regarded and not, not me. I don't need your help. caught red handed it's an old phrase the origin is in the old english law you were to be punished if you butchered an animal that weren't your own but to be convicted you had to be caught while the animal's blood was still on your hands caught red handed what judas is going to try to do is he's going to try to remove the stain going to try to remove the guilt himself He's going to try to undo what it is that He'd done. And you know we have a word for that, and it's called penance. And you don't have to be a Catholic to know about penance. We're born with a nature towards penance. See, penance focuses on what I can do. And I look to myself, and I try to clean myself up, and I, am, I impose a suffering, what I, what I think I deserve, and, and so, so that I can feel like I've justly paid for my sins. Repentance, opposed to penance, is that you look to Jesus, and your first thought's not what I can do to make up for this, because you know the answer is, there's nothing... I can do to make up for this. Repentance is looking to what Jesus has already done. That's how it happens when you're saved. You don't come and say, "Oh, these are the okay, Jesus. These are the five reasons I've thought about it a long time." took some doing these are the five reasons I'm worthy to be saved I've cleaned up my act and tried really hard not to lose my temper and, I, and I've committed I'm not going to I'm not going to cut any corners at work anymore and I'm going to love my children better and I'm going to love my wife better None of that makes you more worthy. There is nothing you can do. And so you come before Jesus. You cast yourself before him. And you receive the humility and his love from the one who is more glorious than all. And you're crushed by the weight of His love. Not a a crushing that kills you, but a that brings you to life. One that changes you. And as believers, we don't come to Jesus with penance, with vows of, never do this again. If you just forgive me this 500 and Ninety millionth time of this thing. I promise I'll never do it again. No, no, I know, I've promised that before, but this time I really mean it. No. We come by faith. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to do what we cannot do. the movie The Mission. Did you see it? Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. De Niro plays this guy named Mendoza and he had been a mercenary for hire who had um, killed, he'd enslaved a, uh, this group, this this tribe of Indians for years. And he comes to a place where he recognizes he knows it's wrong. He, I mean, he is... He is crushed by the guilt of what it is that he has done. So he goes to this guy, Father Gabriel, um, that's played by Jeremy Irons, De Niro's Mendoza. And he, So he goes to confess to him, and Father Gabriel is telling him, hey, listen, you, you can be forgiven for this. There's not anything you can't be forgiven for. But Mendoza, he doesn't believe it. He knows the treachery that he was involved in. And, and so uh, um, Gabriel says to him, Father Gabriel says, there's a way out Mendoza says, "Not for me. There's no redemption." Says God gave us, Gabriel says, "God gave us the burden of freedom. You you chose your crime. Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare do that?" So Mendoza says, "Well, there's no penance hard enough for me. But do you dare try it? Do I dare?" Do you dare to see it fail? So what they do is they decide they're going to take a journey and they're going to journey to this village of the Indians. But what Jeremy Irons' character does is he straps on the back of Mendoza a hundred pounds of armor. So he's carrying this weight. And he's carrying it, you know, up the hill and over waterfalls and you know as they traverse these cliffs, it's in. Them possible journey. They finally get to the village. They reach the destination. The Indians are so excited to see Father Gabriel. And then they realize, they recognize Mendoza. And there's a moment of truth. And so one of the Indians, one of the, the leaders, the elders of the Indians, he comes and he unsheathes his knife and he comes to Mendoza and puts the knife at his neck. De Niro just stands there. He's calm. In fact, he's, he's almost relieved that he's finally going to get to pay for what it is that he'd done. And then to the great surprise, what happens is he takes the knife away from his neck, he cuts loose the pack, and the armor goes clanking to the ground, and then down the lapses and begins to sob. See, it wasn't the penance of carrying the burden that set him free. It was the grace that he received that set him free. Jesus takes off down to wash their feet and says you'll you'll understand this later this is grace I'm washing and making clean what you could never make clean and now having experienced that love it's the way I want you to love each other not forgetting you would, would you bow with me? I'll remind you that maybe this morning you want to pray with somebody, you want to talk with somebody, you want to maybe you're just here and you need a hug from somebody. Right out here our, we have elders that are going to be here, They're they're there for no other reason than to meet with you after this service. So I'd encourage you if there's things the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart this morning don't leave Without talking to somebody about that, Father, we we ask you to do what only you can do. As we look into, peer into this picture of the one who is who came to to dwell among us, the, the eternal Son, your eternal Son, so that we can glimpse His glory. Father, realizing that the glimpse of His glory. comes with an act of humility that absolutely overwhelms us with your love. Father, I pray for those this morning that have never been overwhelmed by your love, never seen it, understood exactly what that means. Father, I pray for those that need to be re-reminded this morning of your love. I come to you not with not with our our penance our, our cleaning-ups, our, our trying to be worthy. Father, we come to You this morning, dirty and filthy, asking You to cleanse us by Your grace to do what only You can do. In our hearts and minds this morning we pray in the name of Your Son, Jesus, and by the power of peace.